welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeroo. The microbiome is a huge frontier of medicine right now. My guest today is Leo Grady. He is the CEO of Jonah Health, and they are combining AI and the microbiome to deliver products in the wellness space to people so that they can have their microbiome tested and the entire microbiome literature is searched for exactly what's in their microbiome to give them incredibly personalized, actionable insights that they can go away with and optimize their health. It sounds like science fiction. It isn't. It's here. It's right now. They launched last week. Um, and Leo himself is a heck of a guy to have done this. So electrical engineer uh, by background, Um I was always been excited about it. AI has done a PhD in it back in 2003, I think, um, and was the CEO of Page, uh, page.ai, if you want to look them up, um, raised 200 million to do AI in pathology. That company went from strength to strength while he was there, was part of a fund, entrepreneur in residence at a fund, and is now going to be CEO of Jonah Health. Um, they've got ambitions to be clinical grade. Uh, they've got ambitions to be used by things like pharma companies that want to test you know, the effects of drugs on the microbiome and things like that. But also, interestingly, the food and beverage industry where you can see a world where a big food and beverage company might go to a company like this and say, hey, we want to have these effects on people. We want to reduce anxiety. We want to reduce inflammation in the gut. We want to increase this behavior, whatever it is that all can be done by the microbiome, by the way, which we know very little about. Um, We do know just it has a huge effect on physical and mental health. But there is a world where drinks companies, food companies can go with a specific ask in mind and work with them to create it. Um, Who knows what world that might lead us to be in, um, but things might be a heck of a lot more evidence-based when it comes to claims that food and drink can do a certain thing. Um, Anyway, this is an awesome episode. Hope you enjoy it. Um, Leo certainly knows his stuff. has got a great company. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Leo Grady and he's internationally recognised for his work to deliver AI in healthcare for 20 years at pioneering Bay Area startups like Heartflow, multinational medical companies like Siemens and most recently as CEO of Page.ai and as CEO of Page, Leo led the company to being an industry leader internationally launching products and receiving the first ever FDA approval for an AI product in pathology. Leo is currently CEO in residence with Brea Capital and the founder and CEO of Jonah, which we are going to talk a little bit about today. Um, But Leo, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thanks for having me, James. You're very welcome. Um, It's a heck of a background you've got. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it greatly. If there was ever a person built for the Health Tech Podcast with your background, the things that you've done and the things you're about to do, uh, I think it would be you. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to getting into it with you. Um, Before we do, where are you based? Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? I'm in the New York City area. Technically Connecticut, but uh, we're based in New York. 
Yeah, it looks absolutely beautiful outside your window for uh, anybody watching this on YouTube uh, can see that too. But yeah, great, Leo. Listen, the way that we start these podcasts is for you to tell your story. Now, as I say, very decorated, lots to this. But where does this all begin for you? Are you someone who had their first company at the age of three while selling something to their siblings and exited to their father, etc.? Or are you someone who uh, starts more at university and does a bit of tech transfer? What, what's your What's your background? What's your story? And uh, what leads you into being a health tech entrepreneur and leader like you are? Well, uh, in college, I was both an electrical engineer as well as uh, anthropology major. And that I was really passionate and excited about both of these. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree, I realized that all the jobs that you could get with uh, that kind of background were, were not anything that I was interested in doing. So I, I got really excited about AI. I was reading science fiction. I was doing all this sort of thing that one does when they're you know 20 and ultimately went on to graduate school in an artificial intelligence program, specifically a neural networks program in Boston at the time. There, I focused on computer vision. It was really a marriage between the electrical engineering side and more the anthropology, psychology side of things. And so from there, I did my PhD. I realized I wanted to be in industry. I was excited about healthcare. And so after my PhD, I went straight into the healthcare industry, uh, starting at Siemens. When was this? Because AI, AI feels, you know, in part, relatively recent and actually there's been a obviously a few waves of this and not least the very recent wave with large language models and ai becoming really kind of mainstream but when are we talking here because it seems like you're quite early to the party um studying ai so i finished my phd in 2003 Mm. uh so exactly 20 years ago and uh, you know, it's funny. I hear that a lot. You know, people say like, "Oh my God, AI just it, didn't it just happen?" Um, <laughs> at, you know, actually, at the time though, it felt like we were we were joining at a time where there was already a lot of history, right? I mean, Alan Turing was working on AI in the 1950s, right? And there was a whole history. A lot of the neural network theory that we use today with these large language models and everything we think of as AI was developed in the 90s or even in the 80s. And so it was definitely out of favor at that time, and particularly neural networks were out of favor at that time. But there was a long history to it, and people had been working on it for a long time, and and there was you know, an increase in capability every year. Uh, leading up to when I did my PhD, and then really every year since. So I think it's kind of burst into the public consciousness with ChatGPT in the last year. But there's been a really steady stream of progress, uh, you know, honestly, for the last 50 years. It's quite funny, isn't it? I've spoken to a few people on this, like, overnight successes or it's almost similar to people that think someone's an overnight success the actual work's been done for 10 20 years in the background and it's sort of similar with ai i guess i've had a you know a couple of guests like matteo baluki on here who's been doing ai since the 90s and all that sort of stuff it's really interesting so yeah you go to grad school you're studying ai you're studying neural networks computer vision you graduate grad school then what happens so I imagine like 
the options aren't going to be huge, or maybe they are in, ter- in terms of that, but it seems relatively niche. It seems <laughs> it's not as if you can get a job anywhere doing this, th- these things, and especially with an interest in healthcare, which I'm interested in as well, why, why you then pick healthcare. But yeah, what happens next in your story and how does that lead to things like heart flow and things like that? Well, at the time that I, I finished my PhD, there were really three application areas of AI at the time. There was military, there was security and surveillance, and there was healthcare. And certainly of those three areas, I was by far the most interested in healthcare. Mm. And the particular uh, place where I did my PhD was really interesting because there were some people in the department that were very much on the neuroscience side of things, really trying to understand how the brain worked and try to model the brain computationally. And then there are people more on the application end. How do we take these principles? How do we take these ideas and apply them? So the training that I got during graduate school had a lot of biology, had a lot of neuroscience, had a lot of those elements of, of not healthcare, but biology mm. and, and medicine. And that gave me a background in that area, to a degree at least, uh, that really helped me see some of the excitement and and some of the interest that ultimately propelled me into the healthcare space. But, you know, I think you were also asking, like, well, why Siemens and, like, why, you know, who was doing what in healthcare mm-hmm. at the time? And to be honest, like, there there were not a lot of groups that were doing it seriously. You know, I feel very fortunate to have gone to Siemens when I did, because it was just this incredible collection of people who are at the leading edge of AI at the time had all assembled within this group in Princeton. And they were, you know, we were really leading AI and healthcare for that, you know, the 10 year period that I was at Siemens. And it was really amazing to be there because, you know, so many people who went on to do other things in healthcare rotated through uh, some people as full-time members, sometimes people as interns, but uh, it was a really interesting time to be there and just an incredible uh, opportunity to be at the right place at the right time. I've seen this a few times where there is this convergence of something like AI, a space, a technology, and then companies that attract lots of people that are interested in that who then, as you say, get inspired, get educated, and then go on to do really interesting things. It's almost like they come in, they see and appreciate that something is possible. They see innovation, they see technology, new technology working. And there seems to be this kind of like belief that something can change. I've actually seen it and heard it a couple of times by people that have been involved in the music industry, where they've actually become entrepreneurs because they were part of a music industry and they either came in, I mean, name your technology, right? They either came in at cassettes and saw it move to CDs. They came in at CDs and saw it move to mini discs. They saw mini discs get disrupted by USB sticks. They saw iPods disrupt everything. They saw, you know, and seeing that this disruption is possible gives people on the one hand, this, this, um, appreciation that perhaps a career is quite fragile uh, and you might need to learn multiple different things. But on the other side, the appreciation and the acceptance that all of this can be disrupted by something that 
little old me could invent or little old me could go to a startup that's got a wild idea and we could actually change the world. And it's so it's so interesting that. And it sounds like Siemens was just that. And actually, you know, with Babylon in the in the UK, you know, with Babylon Health, you know, going bankrupt and there's this huge cohort of incredibly talented people. And you look at some of the things that they have gone on to go and do, even in the last few weeks, or if you look back to the last couple of years, the people that rotated through Babylon with the big vision and the big ideas and everything and, and their ability to attract incredible talent. It's interesting to me that as a concept, that that inspiration and those places, there seems to be these these islands. If you look through technology and health tech and uh, these islands, like perhaps Siemens, as you've describing it, like Babylon will be looked upon in, in, in the future and that kind of thing. But yeah, it sounds to me like Siemens was one of those. Um, and I imagine, yeah, as you say, people have gone on to do great things. Yeah, I, I think there's another element to it too, which was just the the density of people and, and the, the breadth. You know, I think partly it's because Siemens is an international company. It's a German company. Mm-hmm. And so we had people from all over the world that were passionate about AI and excited about AI. But I also remember talking to friends of mine in grad school who went on to academic departments and they would say like, well, I'm the only AI person in the department. I'm the AI faculty member. And I would say like, wow, you know, we've got 100 PhD level people working in this area from all over the world. And so I'm not the only one at all. You know, like I'm specialized in certain areas, but there was an opportunity to just walk down the hall and talk to people that were you know, leading in various aspects of, of AI and had experience in actually trying to bring the technology out into the world, out into clinical product, practice. I think that's really, there's a really interesting lesson in there for me about building companies. And actually for the startups that are listening, for the entrepreneurs that are listening when they're building companies, perhaps you can, I'm skipping ahead here now to all of the companies that you've built and been part of. Is that something that you can foster it can you do that deliberately because we're playing in new technology we're playing in new areas that that always with startups we're trying to do something new and yeah you never want to be working in a silo right and actually you you want to foster almost the complete opposite you want to foster like this environment where people are talking all the time and ideating and you know bouncing off each other and more than the sum of their parts and that kind of thing have you found a way or have you have you got strategies or tactics that that actually foster that is that something that you you know took from your early career and moved into the companies later I'm perhaps putting words in your mouth here but I don't know is that is that a principle that you think you can foster I think you can yeah and and I think at least for me what it comes down to is that great people want to work with other great people And so there's a bit of a self-reinforcing loop. Uh, And also great people want to work on something that is challenging and something that is meaningful and impactful. And so I think if you start a nucleus of people that are really driving for something big and driving for something hard, you know, have like that Manhattan project of trying to do something that's not quite possible yet, but really on the edge of what we can do. And and you bring some amazing people together, that acts as a magnet to bring more and more amazing people together. And I think you you really get this, uh, this chain reaction, this positive mm. feedback loop where you're able to build an incredible environment. But I think those are the two key ingredients. You, you need that sort of vision, that sort of challenge, that sort of uh, that impact, the potential for impact. And then you need a few key people to 
to dive in and and seed that that new venture i absolutely love that great people want to work with great people they want to work on something challenging and impactful that's really really nice and it's interesting vision right you mentioned vision and i think vision is one of those words that's thrown around that's like oh as a as a leader as a ceo as a leader you need to be visionary you need to display the vision and i think people can yeah you know, i'm a visionary i i create the vision i set the vision like all that sort of stuff i don't, i don't actually think vision is is necessarily something that you can just set and expect people to go on because here right in this scenario that you've just laid out wonderfully great people want to work with great people and they want to work on challenging and impactful things actually being in charge of vision means you actually need to be in charge of all of that you actually need to make all of that happen because that is the role of the visionary yes you can say we're taught we're going to be in this sector doing these things and this is our i want this to be our product mode i want this to be our impact i want this to be all these things you can kind of set the roadmap, I guess. But really, being a leader and being a CEO, which I'm going to talk to you about because you've you've certainly got experience here, is perhaps making sure you are putting great people with great people and you are policing that and you are hiring quickly and firing quicker. You are making sure that each of those individuals is doing something that is challenging for them, is something that they consider impactful and knowing your employees enough to know what they think is impactful and all those different things so yeah i think i think that's really interesting so can you with that in mind can you just tell me like how did you go then from the employee at siemens to the ceo of page and talk me through that journey my driving vision from the time that i left graduate school was to use ai to have transformative impact in healthcare and that's what i set out to do when i left graduate school And when I left graduate school, I had this naive idea that if you just build amazing technology, you can transform healthcare. Mm. And what I discovered very quickly is that amazing technology was important, but it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. Uh, You also need to have a great user interface. You had to fit into the workflow. You had to understand the patient journey. You had to have reimbursement. You had to have... Uh, FDA, and you have to protect the IP, and you have to do all these things. And every time I I realized that there was this other barrier in order to drive impact with AI and healthcare, I said to myself, okay, well, I have to learn user experience, right? I have to learn how to, to do these sort of things so that I can actually fulfill my mission of, of making transformative impact with AI. And so through that time at Siemens, I kept learning all of these other skills. Siemens ultimately put me in management because they realized I could have a bigger impact by working with people than by directly doing the coding myself anymore. But, you know, over that time at Siemens, I saw the technology, the AI technology just increase and increase and increase in terms of what it was capable of doing. And I really saw the value shifting from hardware to software. And I felt that we could have a greater impact with really great software, really impactful AI and healthcare by investing in the software and focusing on the software. And fundamentally, Siemens is a hardware company. It's a big iron company. They build CTs, they build MRIs, they build ultrasound scanners. And and they're really top in the world for doing that. Uh, And the software is great too, don't get me wrong. 
But fundamentally, you know, you face this question, like if I build this amazing software, does it work on every scanner? Does it work in every hospital? Does it only work on Siemens scanners? And there's no right answer to that question for Siemens, right? So I felt compelled to go somewhere that was purely a software company. And that's what led me to the Bay Area, to HeartFlow, where we built this cardiovascular diagnostic test for coronary disease that was a combination of AI and computational fluid dynamics. But this is a pure software product, right? So we we relied on a cardiac CT, um, but we could work with any vendor on of cardiac CT software. And we had certain you know, requirements, we had certain patient prep requirements, uh, but the technology really transcended the hardware and the acquisition device. And we brought that product through clinical trial and FDA and uh, NICE recommendation, uh, Medicare reimbursement. It was the first time Medicare had ever paid for an AI product in healthcare. And throughout that journey, I also, I also realized that there was more to driving impact with AI and healthcare. It was not only the clinical trials and the FDA and the Medicare reimbursement and the NICE recommendation and the sales and the support and all of these other things. It was also, um, you know, driving culture within a company, um, managing different groups of people effectively, you know, organizational design within a company, things that, you know, we really don't think of as technical topics, but ultimately, you know, I was approached uh, to join Page AI as the CEO, and I saw an opportunity to really take what I had learned and, and apply it to build an organization that could be delivering AI into healthcare. And so that's why I went from you know leading the technology and product at HeartFlow into that CEO role because I felt that that really having purview over the whole company gave me the opportunity to really drive the impact I was looking for. That's awesome. So when you got into Page, um, in fact, tell us about Page. Tell us what, tell us all about that. And then when you came in, what was Page doing? Where were they versus what did you lead them through? And how did you find that? What did you learn in that period? So Page was a spin out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, one of the top cancer hospitals in the world here in New York City. And uh, Page had uh, an exclusive license to all of the Memorial Sloan Kettering pathology data. So uh, for those listeners who don't know, pathology is the branch of medicine where you take tissue out of a patient, you stain it, you mount it on a slide, and you do a diagnosis under a microscope. And Page was... Uh, had access to you know this exclusive arrangement where we had access to all of the digital pathology slides from Memorial Sloan Kettering, as well as some IP and technology from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, but the company had spun out, and they were looking for a CEO who had experience in AI, who had experience bringing th- things through FDA, uh, driving AI into clinical medicine. And so that's how I got recruited into that position. When I joined, you know, we had this data deal. Uh, We had uh, IP licensed from Memorial Sloan Kettering. They'd already done an initial funding round, but there was no, there was no product. Um, The technology was, you know, in an academic state. 
but really when I joined, we had to build the core products, the core technology and and bring those through an FDA process and launch them. And so while I was there, I raised almost $200 million uh, as the CEO of Page. Uh, we built multiple products. Uh, we had the first FDA approved AI system in pathology. You know, we took, you know, Quest Diagnostics, we partnered with them, uh, took them into a digital world. Uh, we launched our, these products in North America, Europe, and Brazil, and, um, you know, really took it from a an academic situation into a real company with products on the market and, uh, you know, all the functions that are necessary to market that, to sell it, to support it, and to really be able to, you know, lean into the the design and, and creation of these amazing products. I want to ask you about scale in health tech, because I think it is a privilege afforded to the few to even have the opportunity to raise 200 billion with a technology good enough with everything else in the company good enough let alone actually being able to go through with it like you did with page and achieving the scale that you did there are many health tech companies that succumb to the valley of death that gap between seed and series a and you know even a to b is pretty dicey at the best of times. What would you say you learned about what it takes to scale to that level, to get to the point where you have real traction with sales, to make sure that you've got things that you've talked about already, the organizational design and things like that, but perhaps that's actually secondary to what actually gets you over the line with scale? What really matters when it comes to scale? I'm really interested in kind of how you see as a CEO going through that at that time. When you hear the word, when you hear the question, how did we scale? What actually comes to your mind? Like what, how, how would you rank the, the things, the departments, the actions, the, the luck, the, <laughs> the timing, all of those different things? Like what, what comes to your mind when I ask you that question? Scale is a combination of a few different things, right? So scale means you need to be able to distribute your product, right? You need to get it in the hands of hospitals, of doctors, of patients, and to be able to do that both, you know, nationally in the U.S., but also internationally, you need to be able to, to get those products everywhere. So that's that's one part is the distribution. Uh, the other part is that the products have to work in all of these different healthcare environments. And there's there's a lot of heterogeneity in the IT environments of different hospitals. There's heterogeneity in the practices of these hospitals. There's heterogeneity in the patient populations themselves. And so your AI needs to be robust. It needs to be able to work across these patient populations. Uh, but your your tech stack and your infrastructure also has to be robust enough to be able to work across all these different environments. And then the third part of it is really the support, right? So if something's breaking, uh, if somebody needs help, uh, if somebody is is trying to or requesting a feature all across that, that distribution network, you need to be able to uh, respond to them. You need to be able to reply. You need to be able to bring in that that feedback and actually triage it and make use of it and act on it effectively. And so 
it's really to me like those three three elements. One is the the distribution, being able to get your product at all these different places. Uh, the second is that robustness and being able to integrate your product into these different environments and these different patient populations. And then the third is to be able to support it and maintain it at that level. And the support also includes things like security and privacy and, you know, um, being able to be compliant with all the local laws and all of these different areas and nationalization in terms of the uh, the languages that you need to translate the, the product into. So like, there are a lot of aspects to um, mm. to the scale that, that go beyond the AI itself. When you say that the... You talk about robustness, okay? And I can understand that when it comes to, you know, the tech stack and various different processes have to be robust and being able to deal with the things and that runs into support and things like that. The first thing that you said actually there was the AI has to be robust. Now, with your background... Uh, I'm hoping I'm hoping this isn't. Uh, I'm hoping this is going to be an easy question for you to answer. But when when you when you say the AI has to be robust, and you mentioned patient populations there as part of the sort of quicker answer, but what do you mean when you say the AI has to be robust? Well, I think there's a criticism that you can find pretty easily if you look in the, the medical literature and medical publications where people say you know AI is fragile. Uh, you know, this this company, this group, they built this AI technology and then we took it from hospital A to hospital B and it stops working and, you know, it doesn't work anymore. Right. And so people use that as a way of attacking AI and saying, like, this technology just, like, doesn't work. It's not robust. It's not ready for prime time, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's a, a misguided attribution of where the problem is. I don't think... That is a problem of AI. I think that's a problem of whoever built that particular AI system. Right? Like imagine you built a new drug and you only tested it on 50 people and then you start you know, using it all around the world. You're going to find a lot of problems. And that's not, a, that's not an issue of, of medications, right? It's not an issue. That's not a problem of the pharma industry. That's a problem of whoever developed that drug and whoever okayed it to be used on this, this you know, global population, right? And so you can build AI that is very robust, that, you know, appropriately samples the population where you do multi-center studies and you do prospective trials and you do everything that you need to do in order to prove and validate that an AI system can be robust. And that's what you need to do in order to really build a clinical grade system. And that's what we did at HeartFlow. That's what we did at PAGE. That's what we're doing at the new company at Jonah. And that it can be done, but it's expensive, right? And it takes investment uh, and it takes time. And a lot of people want to short circuit that. And it's very easy to convince yourself that because your system works on a few patients here that you can just bring it anywhere and it'll work. Mm. I mean, that's, but that's wishful thinking, right? Mm. Um, and I think the FDA in the U.S. has a very good regulatory framework for you know, proving that, that you have to validate the product appropriately. So you can do it. Um, it just it takes time. It takes takes investment, and um, you know I think some of the payment structures on the other end of that aren't fully worked out to justify that that investment. But uh, but that's what I mean when I talk about robustness. Now there's another side of it too, which I think is really interesting, which is, um, you know, most doctors like they practice in a very small part of the world, right? You know, you 
you get your MD in London and maybe you, you work in London, maybe you go up to Nottingham or Surrey or, or somewhere else, right? Maybe even out in Cornwall or Wales. But you know, you're not generally going to sub-Saharan Africa. You're not generally going to India or Ecuador or you know, the Inuit population in, in Canada. So you're, you're really not seeing the same variety of anatomy and biology and physiology that, that exists in the human population. I think one of the really interesting and, and underappreciated elements of AI is that when you build these technologies and they start getting applied around the world, you actually find that there are very different uh, anatomies, different physiologies, different um, you know, aspects of healthcare that are just different in different patient populations. And if you talk to world experts in these areas, they, they're not aware of this um, because they just haven't had that sort of comparative experience across these different cultures. So I think it, it's interesting, both, you know, kind of on a human level um, and an anthropological level. But, you know, when it comes to actually building the technology, your technology has to be able to handle all this, this variation. And so, you know, I think any AI company that's doing their job well, that gets to that level of distribution scale, is constantly seeing anatomies, seeing patient populations that you've never encountered before. And, you know, hopefully you don't, it just, it, like the technology doesn't break. Um, but you're learning things that allow you to improve the system and make it even better. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do, do you think that at the minute, because of where we are with data sets and defensibility from getting good data sets and, and where we are with open sourcing or lack thereof, like I, I kind of have this feeling that it comes down, the responsibility ends up coming down to those companies as needing to drive the quality of the algorithm, the data sets, the network. Like it, it strikes me then that it's sort of the onus becomes on that health tech company themselves. And you're sort of trusting that they are going to have the right morality to have the right internal values to drive the most variety and to avoid bias and all those all those types of things. Do you have the same feeling that that's where the responsibility lives? Do you think we're doing enough on the policing of those types of things that it's, that it feels more kind of community policed than anything else? And where, where do you think that goes from here? You might disagree, but I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I think the company absolutely has responsibility. And I think, I think we're not doing community policing. Um, at least in the U S the FDA has really strict rules on monitoring. Mm. Um, you know, if you build an AI product or forget AI, if you build a diagnostic test, right, this is a test for Ebola or whatever it is. Right. Mm. And you say, okay, it's 95% accurate or 95% sensitive and 90% specific. And you go and you launch that in the world, you're obligated obligated by regulation to monitor that performance. Mm -hmm. And if your sensitivity drops below 95% and your specificity drops below 90%, you're obligated to figure mm. out what's going on and, and address it. Right. Mm. And if there's an adverse event that, you know, somebody takes your test and, you know, they have some issue that really 
is detrimental to their their health, you know, you're obligated to to track and report these things with the FDA, right? And AI is no different, right? I mean, you build an AI product, you put it out there, and you go through an FDA pathway, you have all these same monitoring requirements, you still have a labeling, it says, it does this, and it works at this level. And you have to monitor that that's true. And if somebody has an adverse event, you got to, you know, track that you have to address it. And you have to figure out why. Mm, mm. And so I actually think it's we go way beyond community policing. Like, yes, the responsibility lives with the companies, but I think the regulatory framework that exists today is absolutely sufficient to yeah. uh, allow us to monitor and make these things safe. Understood. I guess my question now is, though, what about how representative? That is, though. So, for example, yes, I can understand that the FDA will clamp down, and similar, you know, MHRA in the UK will clamp down on intended use and and ultimate sensitivity specificity in that example or quality. But uh, it's my understanding that you can actually get through those frameworks with a relatively narrow data set in terms of exactly what you talked about. That's not necessarily in your example of that Ebola test, perhaps an Ebola test that works on a very specific demographic that's then more applicable more more sort of applied in the marketing of the company or whatever that this is a test that can be for everyone or perhaps used and that kind of thing i'm just wondering kind of where you think we are on making sure that these tests this ai is actually widely applicable across demographics and across patient populations in order to be equitable and and things like that 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 i'm interested in because i I believe that isn't something that's necessarily enforced or any particular guidance around it in order to go through any kind of fda process and that does more fall to the companies themselves i don't know i'm interested in your thoughts on that well i think appropriately people in society have been concerned about this issue Mm. right and we've seen all sorts of examples of ai being used in you know hr hiring decisions or in you (laughs) know legal proceedings for like who gets on bail and who doesn't and Mm. and if there's a bias here it can be very problematic and so people look at healthcare and say like well wait a second healthcare is even more important there's even more patient risk we really need to make sure that we address these issues and I think what they don't realize is that that healthcare has been dealing with this bias issue for a long time. I mean, this is a this is an old demon within healthcare, and you can you can find books, you can find articles on underrepresentation of women in clinical trials uh, for different drugs and different devices. You can find books and articles on underrepresentation of different minorities for different drugs and different. Uh, devices. And, you know, people did die in these situations, right? I mean, there are all sorts of, there's like a a history, a litany of horrible situations that have happened. And as a result, the FDA and the, the international counterparts have put in place really strict guidelines on what needs to be done in order to validate a device across or, or drug across these patient populations. And, you know, the basic mechanism is whatever population you're intending to treat with this, you know, medical device or or drug, you have to sample that population appropriately from a statistical standpoint. 
and any group that you think it may work differently on, uh, the FDA is going to call out specifically to make sure that you sampled those and you do a sub-analysis and you have okay. the right p-values to be able to prove that it works, right? And so both at HeartFlow and at Page, we did de novo FDA approvals, uh, which meant there was no predicate device or class two devices. And we brought these things through the FDA process. And I guarantee we had the FDA, we worked very closely with them and they were very mm. sensible and very reasonable mm. um, and also very strict <laughs> to say, <laughs> you need to sample these populations. At, at HeartFlow, we claimed it didn't really matter whether you used a Siemens machine or a GE scanner or whatever to acquire the cardiac image. And they said, we'll prove it. You have to sample, you know, some of the, the sites have to be Siemens sites and some have to be GE and some have to be Philips. And you, you have to do a sub-analysis to prove that it actually doesn't matter. And so certainly things can slip through the cracks here. And like maybe there's some patient population that for some reason, like you don't anticipate mm-hmm. as an issue but that's why you've got the monitoring requirements. And again, that's that's no different than other drugs or devices in healthcare. So I actually I actually feel like we've got a really strong framework here that works and certainly something that I've had to operate in when I'm building clinical products. Now, just one more word on this, which is not everything goes through an FDA process, right? <laughs> so, if the hospital is making hiring decisions and they're using some AI software in, in their HR department. There's no, there's no FDA process. They don't require anything there. Right. And so that those software technologies that are not directly impacting patient risk that don't have to go through this FDA process, you know, there, there aren't, there's not a regulatory framework for those. And, and one could argue maybe there should be, if you were to argue that, I would just say, well, let's not limit it to AI, right? If you if you use an AI process or you use, you know, some other process in your your HR system, and you're going to say it's it's unbiased, like, well, let's apply the same standard across the board and not single out the AI because I think that's just it wouldn't be sufficient to only uh, target those processes for uh, non FDA healthcare technologies. Indeed. Um, it's really nice actually to hear that because I think there's a lot said about regulators just generally. There's a lot kind of said about they're behind and they can't keep up and like all these things. What you've actually described there is a really practical example, a couple of practical examples of actually exactly what the FDA is required of you, exactly what you've had to go for. You can see that you've got a great deal of respect there for the regulators, quite frankly, in that as you say, like uh, there is a framework for which we have to comply, which is upholding a standard. Now, it's quite clear that standard's not going to be good enough for everyone. Of course, there's always things that any, everyone can do better in literally everything. However, I'm actually yeah, quite minded to say that from what you've just said, it, it does give me quite a lot of confidence actually in in that process for a lot of these AI technologies that are going through um it is just a shame that we live in a world where still you can um have pulse oximeters that don't work on black skin but (laughs) that is that is frankly like ludicrous um but intended use etc um but yeah anyway my point is before i get down that rabbit hole which i could go on for a long time on um and i will talk about in a different episode for those that do care about that um but uh yes 
I think it's 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 nice that there is a framework. It's nice that you have respect for it. And actually, it's nice to hear that of a regulator that at least we're on the right lines when it comes to AI and going forwards. Um, I want to know about Jonah. This is like really interesting. I want to know how you go from uh, CEO at Page, raised 200 million. Um, I imagine in a very nice spot post money and growing a company and doing lots of interesting and cool things to then moving into this next chapter. So tell me the story, tell me the, you know, generation of the idea and how you made the decision to go from that position to now this, um, talk me through the whole thing. So Jonah, we're focused on the microbiome and the microbiome is all the organisms that live in your body and on your body. And it, it consists of bacteria, fungus, viruses, protists, archaea, uh, a whole you know group of different organisms, and it's something that I've been excited about for a long time, right? Um, you know, for a long time we could only culture these organisms, and we were really limited in what we were able to see and, and experience and learn about them. Um, you know, with the advent of of sequencing and 16S sequencing for bacteria, ITS sequencing for fungus, and now shotgun metagenomics, where we can really identify the DNA of all these organisms and we don't need to culture them. It's opened up this incredible explosion of knowledge over the last decade where the microbiome has been recognized to be associated with not only GI disorders, uh, but but basically every, you know, tightly integrated into the immune system, every autoimmune condition, uh, but also oncology, cancer, uh, metabolic disease, obesity, longevity, uh, which drugs work for which people, even Parkinson's and Alzheimer's have been linked with the microbiome, autism and mental health, depression and anxiety have, have both been linked with the microbiome. And yet the, the problem with the microbiome is that it's so complex. Uh, you have all of these organisms, uh, they, they change dynamically. Uh, this particular strain can, can operate differently from a different strain within the same species. So the composition is complex, uh, but also the literature is complex. Every single month, there are more than 2,000 papers published in PubMed on the microbiome. Uh, no human being can read all of these papers. <laughs> so... I really believe that AI was the, the right technology to be able to synthesize all of this data into meaning. You know, I think if you look at the literature and you come to the conclusion that the microbiome is, is so impactful uh, and so integral into your health, then I think the only way that we're going to understand what to do with it and how to use it is with AI. Mm. And so where we started is with a large language model, sort of like the backbone of a chat GPT, large language model that reads all of this literature. And what we do is we offer a microbiome test and we sequence all of the fungus, all the viruses, all the fungus or the bacteria and you know down to the strain level. And then what happens is the AI scours the literature and it finds all the diseases, all the conditions, all the symptoms, all the allergies, all the sensitivities, everything that's been shown to be linked to your microbiome and produces a summary of all of that and cites the studies, tells you whether there's a lot of evidence for it or just early evidence for it. 
And then insofar as you want to change your microbiome and move into a better state, uh, the AI scours literature and figures out all the actions that you might be able to take that have been shown to change your microbiome in a certain way that would be beneficial for you. That could be dietary, it could be lifestyle. Uh, but we also have a lot of evidence that shows that, you know, your, the state of your microbiome affects drug efficacy. Uh, it affects um, and which drugs you take affect your microbiome as well. And so the AI is able to pull all that together and to summarize it into, again, what is known today about the kind of actions you can take. That's incredible. Um, and I have a million different questions to ask you on this. Um, the first one is, how does this come about going from the CEO of Page to you wanting to start this? And the idea, I mean, you're entrepreneur in residence with a fund as well, aren't you? So is this something that the fund invested in putting your CEO of? Was this your idea? Like, talk me through that. Yeah. So after Page, I, I worked on the VC side. I had the opportunity to work with Jim Breyer, who is you know one of the great investors in technology. And Jim has gotten really interested in healthcare over the last few years. Uh, Page was his first healthcare investment ever. Oh, wow. And so through that investment, I got the opportunity to work with Jim really closely and he got very excited not only about healthcare, but specifically the opportunity for AI in healthcare. Mm. And so after Page, Jim's made you know a dozen or more different investments in, in a variety of different healthcare AI companies. And so my role with, with him was to help him find companies, to diligence these companies, to understand whether the technology was meaningful, whether the business model made sense, whether the people that were building this uh, had a good sense of the, the problem they were solving and whether it was worthwhile to solve. And then as, as Jim invested in these companies to really help support them in various roles, uh, board roles, advisory roles and whatnot. And so that was my, my, opportunity to work with him. And it was incredible just to see the breadth of different ways in which AI was being applied. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to start a microbiome company. And, uh, you know, to dial back to the beginning of our conversation, I've always wanted to drive transformational impact in healthcare with AI. And I felt that the microbiome was an opportunity where I could drive the maximum impact with this technology if we could get it right. And so the, you know, the time that I was working with Jim, I was also learning about the space, learning about the, the current state of knowledge in the microbiome, really working on the business plan and the strategy for where we start. But the ambition for Jonah is, is really to elevate the microbiome to a, a new branch of medicine where you know, I believe that it can have a profound impact on someone's health, both from a you know screening standpoint, but also from a diagnostic standpoint. Uh, I think there may be opportunities to even cure some diseases in the future, and to you know really work with the life sciences and even the food and beverage industry on the development of of new and better products. I love this, and I want to talk about this in detail. So, um, the microbiome. You have just said you want to elevate it to a new branch of medicine. I think that's right. I think that's right. That's a grandiose statement. 
but that I think you're right to make. Like, I genuinely believe that the complexity of the microbiome makes it a frontier of medicine. It is one of the, what feels like few, the microbiome, the brain, like there's a few, right, of these frontiers of things that we literally know hardly anything about. And you're right, the complexity of the microbiome means that where we are right now with AI and large language models, it seems like the marrying of two things there, that actually we finally have a technology that allows us to process the amount of data, information, etc., to even start to understand it. But it seems more achievable and finite in terms of the knowledge of the microbiome than something like the brain, which seems quite infinite, quite frankly. Um, but the microbiome does seem finite and doable there's just so much going on that in a but in a world of quantum computing and large language models and these things it starts to feel like oh we might actually get somewhere to understanding all of the processes here and you're right the first layer of that is looking at literature and going well who's tested a against b against c against d and let's just try and find something here and try and find something actionable and all those different things so i think this is awesome my questions on this my first one is you mentioned the business model you mentioned the strategy spending a lot of time to figure that out i'm interested in what that for what you can say i'm interested in what the business model actually is here in terms of how this does make money who you are defining as the customer and the payers whether that's b2b b2c b2b2c etc and actually what the model is i'm interested there and as part of that I'm interested in what your defensibility is because I'm interested that in a world of how quickly large language models are moving and, you know, OpenAI saying only yesterday, I think it was, that they're going to be putting in out these specific GPTs that people are going to be able to package and sell as specific GPTs for a specific reason, probably on 3.5, whatever, maybe even 4. Like, what's your defensibility on what you've just described, bearing in mind what already exists as of today, yesterday, last week, but also where we might be in even two, three, four months or a year's time? So, yeah, talk to me about that. So let's start with the business model question. So in this in this opening act of the company, we are offering uh, this this product, this test, this microbiome service as a cash pay model. So it's not reimbursed, it's not a medical device, it's not a diagnostic. It's a, a test where we sequence the microbiome and then we, we summarize what the literature has to say, uh, both from you know, the association with these different diseases and connections, and, uh, but also on the actions that you can take mm. to improve it. And that product is being sold. It's a wellness product. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not a medical device uh, mm -hmm. because we're just – summarizing that literature together and we're selling it cash pay through concierge medicine yep. through you know functional health the uh, integrated medicine executive health any cash pay aspects of the healthcare market mm. we also offer a version direct to consumer as well uh, that has some of the information um, some of the information we we save only for medical professionals um, but that we also offer this version direct to consumer. Mm. So this is a, it's a cash pay model. 
And the idea is that as we're able to generate some revenue, generate more data, see more samples, that will give us the fuel to really build clinical grade solutions as we go forward. Um, just knowing what it takes to go through the right. FDA, what it takes to build that clinical grade technology, it takes time and it takes resources. Mm. And those resources, both in, in data and in um, revenue. And so starting with this cash pay model, I think we can offer people a lot of, of incredible benefit compared to what, what's out there today. And so this is where we're starting. Now, in terms of defensibility, I, I think that there, there are a couple ways in answering the question. So you, you dove into like technical defensibility. And so let me start there. People ask me this question a lot. They say like, well, GPT-4 is great and it can do all these different things. Like in a few years, we'll have GPT-10. And so why, why are you guys building anything here? Isn't it just going to like sweep away everything? And I, I think that that is... Um, a misunderstanding of what the technology is capable of and where, where it's good and where it's not good. Right. So if you break down our, our tech stack, it's really got three parts to it. So the first part is analyzing all of these papers and saying that this is a paper about Crohn's disease. And it was, uh, you know, there were a hundred subjects and there was 50% men, 50% women. They did sequencing. Uh, they, uh, found that in the, the healthy population versus the Crohn's disease population, Crohn's patients had more E. coli and they had less acromancia and all these different things, right? And so the the first part of our technology is just pulling out all of those those keywords and understanding what this paper is about and what the findings were and what the patient population was and how the study was done, right? And then pulling all of that into the knowledge base. So that's the first part. The second part is now that you've read whatever, 200 papers on Crohn's disease, and they all found different things and they had different study designs and all this, then you have to put them all together in order to actually interpret somebody's microbiome tests and say, yes, you fit this profile of Crohn's because of these papers or you don't. And then to be able to, to cite those papers. And then the third part is the generative part where we, we generate a report for someone uh, that is tailored for them, that is tailored for their own goals, which they tell us when they're, they sign up. And that, and there's the, there's that part too. And we've got a, a lot of plans for, you know, how to enhance the, the features on the generative side. And so if you take those three parts, you know, I think GPT 10 or whatever we're, we want to talk about, I think it can certainly help with the last part, right? Yes. I mean, trying to package this information into a version that is sensible for somebody to read and even interact with. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the core of what we do is the first and the second part uh, from a technology standpoint, because no matter how good GPT-10 is, there's still, you need to put some framework into understanding what these papers are about and what they're studying and, and pulling out specific knowledge and being able to to leverage that knowledge to to you know interpret the papers, but then the, the the second part of merging them all together in a way that allows you to interpret somebody's test results um, that's really non trivial. And and I think a good analogy here is like if you were to go to GPT four today and you were say you know multiply these two twelve digit numbers, it'll give you an answer. Uh, 
And that answer is most likely wrong, right? <laughs> and it's not because, and it's kind of like surprising to a lot of people, right? Mm. Because you say like, okay, well, this thing can build, you know, a screenplay on X, Y, and Z, and it can mm. write my college essays. Why can't it multiply two 12-digit numbers? It's a, it's a freaking computer. Like, mm. it should be able to do this. And we have, you know, we've had calculators since the 80s that can do this, right? And so... You say like, well, why why can't it do that? And the reason is because large language models are not built for that sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, and they they can get it right to a certain degree. Um, but you know what you really want is for the AI to say, oh, this is a calculation. I'll pull out my internal calculator and just mm-hmm. do this mm-hmm. and give you the right answer, right? But that's not how it works today. And so that calculator piece. I, I would say is a good analogy to the, a lot of the technology that we're building at Jonah. How do we actually put all of this information together to interpret somebody's yeah. test result? Uh, it's not obvious, right? I mean, that's basically like the calculator and this analogy. Mm. And, um, and I don't think that OpenAI is ever going to build that mm. uh, because it's just not, it's not their business model, right? Mm. I mean, that they're building a platform and we're, very deep and verticalized in this application. And of course, you know, we file patents and we file all these sorts of things as well. And and as we generate more data, we have access to insights that, you know, an open AI is not going to yeah. have. Yeah. Um, but I think from a technology standpoint, we, we actually have a very defensible position. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's also... I mean, who, who's going to be leveraging GPT-10 best? It's going to be the people that leverage GPT-4 best, of course. It's going to be the people with that experience and all that kind of thing. And, and the moat behind you even of just the progress that you're making at this point. And as you say, just learning with the technology and your tech stack is multiple. It's not just that element, but in it now, you will learn as those technologies increase in, in their complexity and ability as well. The other thing that's interesting as well to me was, um, was two things I want to talk about. The first one is, the ambition to be a clinical grade solution. That's really interesting because yes, the wellness B2C model is always fantastic at just showing a company, can I build something of value? Will someone exchange money for this service, which gives value? But yeah, having that ambition as well and starting where you are, knowing that's coming, how do you plot the path to there? What is it that you're doing now that gives you the opportunity to do that later? And the reason that I ask is because I imagine there are people that are thinking left, right, and center. I can leverage large language models and a couple of other bits to do X in a similar way to what you're doing, perhaps in a different place or in a different way. But how, with that in mind, what does that change about what you're doing now, what you're collecting, what you're doing, what you're showing, what you're keeping, et cetera? Like what, what does that mean for how you're building currently with that in mind? Well, as, as we move toward that future, we, we will always have uh, an element of the company that is focused on the wellness industry and the cash pay industry and uh, working with, with these concierge docs and, and directly with consumers and patients themselves. So that's always going to be something that we do. It's not like we're going to move from there into a clinical world. Uh, For us, it's an and, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to take what we already have and build clinical products. And to build a clinical grade AI solution, um, it requires quite a bit of work, right? I mean, everything that we were talking about earlier in terms of 
being able to sample the population, to do a prospective trial, to do validation. And you have to specify a particular indication, right? With this initial wellness product, we take everything that's been studied in the literature, right? And that can be anything from, you know, the microbiome's connection to celiac disease or to colon cancer, or it can be, um, you know, how meditation impacts your microbiome, right? I mean, there are papers on all of these things and the AI is pulling all that together, summarizing it for someone to help them have that picture of their own health. Um, you know, as we think about a clinical grade solution, we have to really specify what what is this product for? Is this a, a treatment? Is this a diagnostic? Is this, are, are we looking at your microbiome and what are we doing with it? And who are the indications? What, is it, what are the health economics of that? How does it get reimbursed? There's a whole set of other questions that are very specific compared to the, the product that we have now. And so our view is that they, these, these products work hand in hand. Um, you know, the touch point that we have directly with, with patients and with providers now gives us insight into the microbiome, into how the microbiome is related to a variety of different diseases or conditions or actions that people may take, collecting, uh, you know, when, as people have longitudinal samples, they retest over time and we see the actions that they've taken and the impacts on their microbiome. It gives us a lot of opportunity to build those clinical grade solutions more effectively. Um, so I, I see them really as working hand in hand, um, but starting with this wellness product where we can really deliver value to people immediately, given yeah. the, the complexity of the microbiome, the complexity of the literature. And the learning that you go through with that model as well. I think it's a, I do think it's a great model. It gets, it gets, it gets a bit of heat that model actually, just because of like, are you, are you just for the rich? Are you creating, you know, digital poverty is this equitable like blah blah, blah. Okay, I, I understand those arguments but i don't i still don't think there's any getting around the fact that if you want to just get something to market quickly to see if it works to then build your case for the system level business model to build the data for your health economic model in order to bring it down like bring it to everybody i think yes there's there's no denying as long as people have got those intentions which is great um the final thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go is uh, you mentioned a really fascinating concept to me here, which is when it comes to the microbiome, then working with the life sciences and the food and beverage industries, that is fascinating to me because this now is talking about a real paradigm shift in the way that everybody, let's call it the public, thinks about their microbiome and how they contribute to it. Now, there are some companies that are doing this quite well, I think, at the moment, and there are some individuals that are doing this quite well that are popping up on quite big B2C podcasts with companies like Zoe and others that, um, you know, that are bridging this gap between the B2B world and the B2C world and bringing this information to the masses in terms of how people change their diet and you know, goodness knows, like I was a medical student and we learned nothing about the, the, about the diet. We, certainly the microbiome was never even mentioned when I was at medical school, let, let, let alone like how people eat and nutrition and nutritional values. And or, these things just aren't medical knowledge. And they're also not 
public it's also not public knowledge it's actually being driven i think more from the public to be perfectly honest and more from the b2c world people of optimizing their health those people are really the ones that know most about supplements and eating 30 different grains per day and the effect that that will have on your microbiome and, and these types of things right so when you when you talk about this synergy between the health tech that you are building with the microbiome, the life sciences industry, food and beverage industry. When you think about the synergy of those, what, what are you referring to there and what does that look like? It's a range of different opportunities. So let me give you a few vignettes, right? So with a uh, company that's testing a new drug, right? They want to know, I mean, depending on which phase trial we're talking about, they want to understand who this drug is going to work best for. And so they collect a lot of biomarkers. They'll take blood, they'll take urine, they'll take all sorts of different aspects of that, those patients to understand, you know, if somebody has an adverse uh, event, right, if they don't do well on the drug, are there characteristics that, that the drug company can understand that, that characterizes those people? People who do really well on the drug, can they understand the characteristics that, that are going to drive that? And so, you know, one one very simple thing to do is the microbiome is just not even on that list today. Or if it is, they do a very simplistic analysis. They, they look and they say, okay, well, maybe there was higher E. coli here or Shigella or whatever it was, right? And so I think one opportunity is to really leverage that the complexity of the microbiome and the, the knowledge base of what we know today in order to better elucidate, you know, who's going to respond to these drugs and who's not. And you know, build better drugs and, you know, ultimately bring them to, to market faster for the right people. So, I mean, that that's just one vignette, mm. right? Another is like on the food beverage side, if somebody says, um, I want to build a product that's aimed at uh, stress reduction, or I want to build a product that's aimed at uh, gut health, or I want to, you know, build a product that's aimed at, you know, you name it, X. And they're trying to find the right ingredients yeah. to where they, they, yeah, they know that that this is going to intersect with the microbiome in a way that is connected to whatever it is that they're going after. And they're looking for how do we craft this product? How do we design this product? What ingredients should we use? What's known about how those ingredients are going to affect the microbiome? And then further, how the microbiome is going to affect whatever it is that we're mm. targeting. Um, you know, that there are a lot of dots to connect there, mm. right? The ingredient to the microbiome, to the effect. And without, you know, the AI, without this sort of knowledge base, it's very difficult to connect those dots. And so, you know, in the, the context of designing this new product, I think we can help them connect those dots more freely and also say, well, well wait, how do we figure out which ingredients are going to maximize health and really target the thing that we want to target. I think that's awesome because what that will end up driving is a very kind of evidence-based claims from companies in marketing in this and that and the other that those companies can actually feel that, hey, we've done the test and we've done the work, in fact. Because what, what you're actually talking about there is it's a process. It's not necessarily, hey, we test it and give you a report and, you know, try again later that opens up to more of like a process to actually work with those companies to achieve something that a company could like you know if coca-cola dare come to you and say hey we want to create a product that does x result 
can you help us work back from X results in terms of what the effects on the microbiome that would have to be and how we might do that in, you know, this range of stuff that we can play in to put in the drink. Like, it's interesting to me that, like really interesting because I think you end up in a place where you get a lot more value to the consumer through means by which the companies are willing to enter an evidence-based conversation. So I think that's really interesting because again, you, you, you might end up creating like a meritocracy there as well, because there's a lot of, you'll know this, there's a lot of old wives tales that come along with certain beverages and certain foods and certain this, that this does this and this has this effect and this has this effect and, oh, you're feeling a bit nauseous, you know, have some, have some full fat Coke. Like, really? Like, <laughs> what is this a thing? Like, uh, if they can prove it, fantastic. But if they can't, then perhaps it elevates something that does actually have more value, et cetera. You know, so there's there's a lot more value that I think can reach the consumers that way. That's a really interesting, really, really interesting model. But I've kept you for long enough here. Um, I just want to say, Leo, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute pleasure. You're launching Jonah or have launched Jonah incredibly recently. So um, do you want to just quickly tell the listeners how they can go about getting involved? So we launched last week. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And, and thank you also for uh, you know, all your, uh, what you're saying about the food and beverage industry and the impact that we're able to have. Someone can go to www.jonah.health. Um, you can find out more information about the company there. You can order your own kit. Um, you can talk to your provider about it. And if they, um, you know, please be in touch. I mean, you can always email us at, you know, hello at jonah.health or find me on LinkedIn or, or other socials. Uh, we're easy to contact. We're very receptive. We really want to hear from people and we really want to build these products and these technologies in a way that has maximum benefit and maximum uh, help to any individual who's trying to, to learn more about their health, trying to figure out, you know, problems that they're having ultimately to, um, you know, optimize where they're going with it. So yeah, please be in touch. We are preparing a variety of different manuscripts to publish in the scientific literature and there's a lot more to come. Awesome. Uh, Leah, as I say, it's been a pleasure. I think you've got, you've got a heck of a background. Um, you've obviously got experience doing so many different things in health tech. Um, I think the future is bright. Like with what you're up to with Jonah, I think there's a lot of impact that you can have. Uh, I think that your grounding in the science, your grounding in the need for evidence and the use of evidence-based literature, seeking the evidence-based literature with what the the AI is actually doing, but also just frankly, like how much you know about AI. I think the fact that you're coming into this whole process, the whole tech stack with your eyes wide open, um, I think I think you're an incredible person to be doing what you're doing. So thank you for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure and I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much, James. It's been fun. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.